Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Over the last decade, the rise of software as a service, or SaaS as it's commonly known, has dramatically transformed both the software industry and the myriad enterprises it serves. As the pace of digital transformation and growth of cloud computing has accelerated, SaaS has rapidly become the software delivery model of choice and preferred alternative to legacy on-premise products. This paradigm shift to an on-demand subscription-based model opens up a number of opportunities for new entrants and startups to make their mark in the sector. And India is one market particularly well-positioned to do so. After a period of relative underinvestment, its own SaaS industry is just coming into its own as global demand for its offerings is reaching new heights. SaaS Bhumi, a community of founders of Indian SaaS companies, recently sought to quantify the country's opportunities in SaaS, as well as analyze value creation characteristics among top-performing organizations in other markets and identify specific measures for how the industry could reach its full potential. McKinsey served as the knowledge partner in this effort, providing independent third-party research and analysis. The final report, Shaping India's SaaS Landscape, details the key findings. Today, we're pleased to have two guests who were involved with the report joining us to discuss the overall challenges and opportunities facing the burgeoning SaaS sector in India. Manav Garg is the chair of SaaS Bhumi and the CEO and founder of Eka, a cloud-based enterprise solutions provider. Sid Tandon is a partner in McKinsey's Silicon Valley office, where he serves executives and boards of technology, media, and telecom companies on strategic and value creation efforts with a focus on software. Manav, Sid, thanks so much for joining us today. Sid, let's start with a broad perspective. Tell us about the key global SaaS trends we're seeing these days and the growth potential. We've done a lot of analysis on, on SaaS in the last few years. And what we are seeing is SaaS is currently about a $200 billion to $300 billion market, depending on what forecast you look at. It is expected to double in size by 2025 and continue growing from there to about $800 billion in revenue by the end of the decade. That just presents an extraordinary growth trajectory. The second thing that is really interesting is the value creation potential that SaaS is offering. The current SaaS market, give or take, is worth about $3 trillion in value in the market. That is expected to grow to about $10 trillion by the end of the decade, which just represents an unbelievable value creation opportunity and it's fairly broad and it's fairly secular. SaaS is extremely democratic in the sense that it is global. It is broad-based in terms of industries and verticals and, and horizontals it touches. And it is a fundamental shift in the way digitization and technology is happening in this decade in industry. A little over a third of all software today is, is SaaS, and I think the projections are something like going up to about 80% by the end of the decade. That's exactly right, Daniel. and I think that is a huge tailwind. There's two tailwinds to SaaS growth, right? There is a tailwind around the uh, accelerated digitization in the enterprises and SMBs, and there's a second tailwind, which is the conversion of the legacy software base, which is a massive software base, into a uh, SaaS model. Between the two of them, that's basically driving the growth trajectory at, at about a 20% clip between now and the end of the decade. 
Manav, let's drill down now into the state of play in India. How big is the SaaS potential and opportunity there? If you give you some context, we have about 1,000 plus SaaS companies in India today. We have more than uh, 15 unicorns as of now. And uh, we have about $2.6 billion in revenue in SaaS that is being produced today. Now, that is expected to grow to, to about 50 to $70 billion by 2030. So you're looking at 25x growth in the next 9 to 10 years, at the end of this decade. And a lot of this growth is coming because of few fundamental reasons. Number one, India now has a unique play in the global market, especially during this whole pandemic, when you can do the entire digital go-to market sitting in India. That has created a massive opportunity for coming in India. Number two, we have a large talent pool of domain experts and engineers who can create software sitting in small towns. Of course, Bangalore, Chennai are the hubs of SaaS, but now we are seeing companies coming up from tier two, tier three, even the smaller cities in India. And number three, India has a huge developer pool, the second largest developer pool, about 3 million plus developers right now who themselves are a big market for infrastructure tools. Infrastructure tools represent about 40% of the overall market of the SaaS. These three fundamental reasons are giving each huge amount of tailwind. The SaaS is a secular trend. You can create the company in a horizontal, uh, like HR or finance uh, or sales, or you can go vertical healthcare. You can just choose innumerable amount of fields to go after and create a very valuable company. Right. And obviously, India, with its vast experience in global IT services, has a great amount of domain and vertical expertise. And I assume that would also be a strength moving forward for SaaS. Absolutely. And that plays into the trend when you said one third of the market is SaaS and remaining 64, 65% is still on-premise. So that is where we have a lot of embedded talent in the services firm who are actually supporting their software in the back end here in India. So all the domain knowledge can actually be converted into workflows which then get automated into SaaS companies. Cost efficiency, I would assume, is always an asset and certainly in the SaaS universe as well. Cost efficiency for development, I would not put that as number one, though it will create an impact in terms of R&D. But I think the customer acquisition cost makes a lot of difference. If I have a digital go-to-market, typically a value-based or a US-based SaaS company spend about 40 to 50% of their revenue in sales and marketing or go-to-market. We believe by playing a hybrid approach where you do 70% India or even do 100% from India, you could perhaps you know look at a co- half of that as a cost of acquisition, 25 to 30%. So I think that is where the maximum difference is going to come. And will that help with the competitive landscape evolving in terms of India versus other parts of the globe? I think I read in the report that... Uh, Fully 40% of the top 600 public SaaS companies have been founded outside the United States. So there already is quite a global profile for the SaaS industry. And India has, up to now, only taken a relatively smaller part of it. That leaves a lot of room for growth, I would think. Yeah, we expect Indian SaaS to grow to about 7% of the global market. You know, Sid talk about $10 trillion in an uh, overall market cap. So we're expecting to almost touch between $700 billion to $1 trillion market cap by 2030. Sid, what are the implications of these conditions, both global and within India, for SaaS companies in India, how they approach the market and ability to grow? I just want to build on this point that Mana was stating earlier. The importance of the B2B domain expertise that's sitting in India, we can't stress that enough, right? In all the conversations we've had, 
a level of understanding that exists about the individual processes and workflows in the Indian services industry and is just phenomenal. It's like unparalleled. And I think that is a huge advantage. And I think the point Manav mentioned on the go-to-market, and that is a fundamental point, which is the biggest constraining factor for a SaaS company is how rapidly you can drive growth. A lot of that essentially gets down to how much resources you need to deploy to drive growth in terms of dollars and people. We are seeing models emerge where 70-80% of the sales and marketing workforce is sitting out of India. And given the broader availability of talent and lower level of investment required to acquire that talent relative to the North American market, for the same dollars, you can actually drive a lot higher growth, which is all that counts in SaaS, right, in terms of value creation at this stage. And so we think that India has a massive structural advantage in the post-pandemic era because of this whole pivot to hybrid and digital go-to-market. In terms of the implications, What's really interesting is we actually went as part of the report and had conversations with close to 40 plus investors and about 50 or so uh, startup companies in India, including running a bit of a quantitative survey. And what was really interesting that came out of that is most of the Indian companies, SaaS companies, are still a little under-indexed on growth in the sense that the level of investment that they're making relative to what they should be making is low. And if you rewind the clock back 12 months, a lot of it was driven by the lack of capital in the country. And there wasn't that much venture capital flowing into B2B SaaS compared to the rest of the world. But that has totally changed this year, as Mana was saying. There's just like an unbelievable amount of capital now available to companies to grow rapidly. So that has fundamentally changed. The second thing is the mindset of the founders and the investors was to build a sustainable business and start producing profitability. And it's not a bad thing to build a sustainable business. It's just that the rate at which SaaS is evolving you need to have your pedal to the metal on growth. And I think having the capital to invest in that growth, given now that it's available, we expect that mindset to shift more aggressively towards a growth mindset than had been in the past. You and I have talked before about keys to growth and SaaS. Can you talk briefly about the rule of 40 and how important that is? Obviously, it'll be critical to SaaS companies in India, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. For the folks hearing that for the first time, effectively, it's just the free cash flow plus revenue growth and what that number turns out to be. In any given state, it is as much above 40, sort of rule of thumb is you want to be above 40 as much as possible. And now you can get there in many ways, right? For most of the companies in India, given the state of maturity in the industry, that will look more like 50 to 70% growth year on year. And you'll probably be losing 10 to 20% on free cash flow, which is fine because of the way SaaS works, right? In terms of the long-term cash flows of the business. So we think that essentially the focus is going to be more on let's drive the investment, let's drive 60, 70, 80% growth when we are at 10, 20, 30 million ARR. And as the ARRs get up to like 100 million plus, that growth will basically rate down back to 40, 50%. But at the same time, given the point that Manav made earlier about the inbuilt efficiency of the model of operating out of India, you would see potentially Indian companies become more profitable sooner. Manav, I don't know if you want to talk about the Freshworks IPO and sort of the first view into financials of a mature Indian SaaS company that has reached about 300 million plus in revenue. Yeah, so absolutely. So Freshbook is a typical example of what can be done from India. They have proven that A, you can scale from India, B, you can create uh, unparalleled value, right? So Freshbook has reached 300 million revenue in about uh, 10 years, probably one of the fastest to go to 100 million in a span of about five and a half years or something like that. And that's all on the back of the model of selling all from India. They build their go-to-market 
primarily from India. And of course, now they're a global company. They have multiple offices and a global go-to-market, but still they follow the hybrid go-to-market model. Actually, one of the pioneers of, of this entire model was Zoho. You know, while Zoho is not listed, so the revenues are not known and the value is not known, but they actually pioneered this whole model of building this SMB-based go-to-market model for India. I also want to bring an aspect which said, and McKinsey also talks about it, is the enterprise market. What we also beginning to see now is that the enterprise, which is global 1,000 or global 5,000 companies, are equally available for Indian SaaS companies to enter and give them that value which they're looking for in terms of digital transformation, digitizing the workflows. Uh, because it's global software, it is a similar aspect. It is just a trust curve that you have to go through. So I think uh, we're looking at far, far bigger and broad-based opportunity than it ever was. Yeah, and Daniel, then going back to your point about the implications, we talked a little bit about the growth mindset and where it needs to go. When we look at SaaS companies broadly, I think it's important to just understand what drives value. And those are the three main things that Indian SaaS companies would focus on in addition to the pivot to growth. There's a massive go-to-market point that Manav has been talking about. We call that a revenue engine, right? It's like, how do you stand up your revenue engine in terms of driving your new logo acquisition, driving your net retention, driving new innovative models like the one that Freshworks pioneered around like growth. Then there's a whole point around product engine, right? And this revolves the talent base for product managers, for product uh, designers, right? In addition to obviously developers, but the product UX, UI, the product management piece is very, very important, right? And we think that that's actually at the front end of this. And then the third piece I'd, I'd say is the new business building engine. If you look at the example that Mana was talking about for Zoho, or even if you look at Freshworks and multiple other companies, they start with one product, right? But as they build that one product, within a few years, they will start building the second product or the second business. They start entering a new country. And this is this constant creation of the next accelerant, the next S-curve, okay, which is very critical for the long-term sustaining growth of a SaaS business. And we think essentially like if you step back and say, okay, what are the implications for the Indian industry to get there? I mean, those are in addition to the pivot to the growth mindset, the revenue engine, the product engine, and this new business building engine are three things that we'll need to focus on over the coming years as you build this industry out. And Manav, how big a challenge is that to founders in India in the SaaS space? I'm thinking in particular, the product talent gap is one that your report commented on and something that is going to have to be dealt with in terms of increasing that talent pipeline. But obviously, the growth mindset and focusing on growth, not worrying so much about profitability and getting into new business opportunities. How much of a challenge are those things for founders going forward? If you ask a a SaaS founder or any founder in tech today, what are the top three issues? They will say talent, talent, and talent. (laughs) Right. Uh, I think with the kind of growth, which is unprecedented with, you know, B2C companies growing, we have now B2B software companies growing, which is SaaS, we have marketplaces growing. And in this pandemic, the whole work behavior has changed. Many people not even coming to office, they're taking, you know, sabbaticals six months, one year, then coming to office. Uh, new talent has not been fully come into mainstream as yet. There's a massive amount of shift happening in the what, what you call future of work, the way the office will look, the hybrid workplaces. While we're looking at growth and massive potential on one side, we also Uh, facing the unprecedented challenge on the talent acquisition and talent retention and talent management. These three aspects are the massive aspects that Indian companies or any company world over will have to manage. 
India has done that before for services where they created huge amount of supply 20 years back. If you go back to late 80s when Infosys, Wipro and other companies got founded in India, we had obviously no supply of tech engineers back then. I think it's a similar time, a similar thing that we're looking to do from the SaaS industry, tie with the government infrastructure. You know, we have huge education infrastructure, which is, you know, government controlled and government has been very supportive. There's a huge amount of private industry as well in education who are willing to invest with the SaaS companies and create programs specific to SaaS engineering or SaaS guru market and inside sales. And of course, the product management talent. If I look forward for next three years, I think talent would be the most important thing to manage and address. And I'm seeing today, I went to office for the first time. We have 600 people. We called 100 people in the office and it's a very different culture. People work behavior has changed. The expectations have changed. Uh, and I found a very different way of working, though it is all good to go in the office. But I think we'll all have to use to very different way of uh, of working now. You mean even when people do come back, even when they spend that part of the hybrid in the office, it's going to feel different. And I assume that's a management challenge too, right? In terms of how you get the most out of people and, and deal with that culture change. Yeah, the paradigm is shift, right? So I don't think we're going to see 100% attendance in the office in the near term or even the midterm. There are people who are working remotely. There are people who are working from office. There are people who have their different methods, the way they want to work. And if you look at a lot of companies looking at different office configuration, different kind of rules for people. So I think there's a massive change in the workforce. That's going to happen. On top of it in India, as Sid was mentioning, a lot of MNCs are also doing big hiring now. So this global go-to-market is not only true just for the startups. It's also true for MNCs, right? If you're a Salesforce, a Workday, Atlassian, they all can copy the same playbook and create huge go-to-market machineries in India. And I remember Oracle did it in very early days, about 20 years back when they started inside sales from India, even for selling a traditional enterprise software. And now we're in the era of everything online. So I think we're going to see the onslaught from all kinds of places. Sid, in terms of the product talent gap, that's very different from traditional engineering or, or tech developer type talent. In terms of that focus, is that a big shift for Indian companies to have to grow that particular pipeline? Yeah, and that's a great call out. I think product management is one of those like underappreciated talents, right, or capabilities. And when we look at what makes companies really successful, it always boils down to having really good product management. And product management is not something that is taught in school. It is not something that is like you can learn computer science engineering and you know how to code. It is something that you have to train to do over a period of time. So it just takes time because you're building a a relatively complex skill set that involves working with engineering, that involves working with customers, it involves working with sales and marketing and DevOps and delivery. We think that talent pool is going to be absolutely at the heart of this fight that Manu is talking about because the people that get the best product managers will ultimately have the best products and ultimately when there's going to be a huge push towards building out this capability at scale in the country. Let's not forget Indian IT services industry to Manu's point came from nowhere 20 years ago okay to what it is today. Like it is literally the beating heart of the global IT services industry. If you take that as the inspiration point, we believe that once the country rallies and sees the opportunity in front of it, we're already seeing it, right, in the conversations we're having with our clients and anything else. And Manav, you touched upon the role of stakeholders such as government or, or education in terms of increasing the pipeline and skills. 
um, be that, you know, through skilling programs or incubators. Can you just talk a little bit more about the role of each stakeholder and obviously venture capital is part of that to fully tap this potential? Yeah, sure. In the last one year, we have seen unprecedented amount of capital flowing into the startups. So just to give you an idea, if the seed valuation was X about 12 months back, it is now 3X, which means startups are raising three times more capital at a seed stage. So typically, if they were raising half a million on an average, now they're raising 1.5 to anywhere between $3 million at a seed stage, which is same as Valley, which means they have the potential to invest, go to market from day one, instead of waiting for a year or two to first build the product and then start go to market. That will solve the problem of designing from growth or scale from day one. If you're successful, you're going to be insanely successful. That's what it means. Similarly, we're also beginning to see Indian IPO market opened for actually mid to late stage companies. I think that is a significant shift in the Indian investor mindset or Indian street because it creates huge amount of valuation in India. You don't have to go to a NASDAQ or London or Australia or some other global market to monetize the value. So therefore, the need for late stage capital can also be handled through Indian IPO market. I think that's going to create significant change. You know, founders really like it because they get a lot of social recognitions, family feel really important. And of course, there's a huge amount of valuation for all the employees and stakeholders who have invested in the company in, in many ways. Investors who have never invested in Indian SaaS before are now actually beginning to look at it as an asset class. Now on the supply side, I think talent, talent and talent is the core issue right now. But I think that is the problem which we have solved in the IT services before. So there's a playbook that exists. Playbook is that you go deep into the Indian educational system. We have, you know, hundreds of thousands of educational institutions in engineering and inside sales and marketing, which can be accessed. You start creating tailor-made program to what is required. So for example, if SaaS needs cloud, you can go to engineering organization. And now government has announced that entire new education policy in which the universities can actually create their own curriculum. They are actually talking to industries and say, can I now tweak my last semester for more of cloud, DevOps, SaaS ops, which are required for a cloud company. And there are schools who are willing to train talent on inside sales and sales and marketing. Right. I'm just curious, and I know we're coming near the end now, the global IT services existing relationships with big global customers. How much of an asset is that going to be going forward? Will Indian SaaS startups strike alliances with the Indian global IT services powerhouses to help with outreach? Or um, I'm just curious if that's something that, uh, you know, in terms of how how much of an asset those existing relationships can be for the SaaS growth. We are seeing some of this already happen. Ultimately, it falls back from the customer, right? Especially if you go customer segment by segment. In the large enterprise segment, we think that is the playbook that's going to play out over a period of time because the customers are asking for deployments of these SaaS software, but it has to be tailored to the environments given the legacy infrastructure they have, right, or the current infrastructure they have. And so there's going to be a big push towards some sort of a partnership between these innovative SaaS companies coming out of India and the IT services companies just because that's what's needed to actually serve the customer the right way. We do think that essentially that's going to start in the enterprise. And given that such 40% of the global IT spend goes in the large enterprise, that's going to be a huge opportunity for these areas to participate. I do think that essentially you will see a lot of innovative models also come out around product-led growth, stuff that essentially does not require a physical go-to-market channel. So which is purely digital, either self-serve and things of that nature. 
And I think that is a post-pandemic construct, which has been truly embraced by Indian companies, partly out of need, because they don't have sales forces, they don't have the presence in local countries, Western Europe and North America. But they're pairing that digital go-to-market motion in the SMB and the mid-market with a partnership-led construct with the SIs in the large enterprise market to get the maximum growth trajectory and velocity. I'll also add that on this entire infrastructure, the dev tools market, I just want to keep on bringing that point again and again, where Postman is a leading example right now, Browser Stack, another example. I think that is something which also has huge amount of bottom support option. So developers start using the product first and they that make their life easier. And then all you know, the company just start growing crazily without having any feet on the street or enterprise sales motion as such uh, for certain level of growth. India has like 3 million developers at this point, right? So there's like a massive pool of potential customers, for lack of a better word, that already exists in India. So you learn from them, you serve them. Correct. And I think the second vector is actually the cloud providers themselves. If you look at Microsoft Azure or Google Cloud, Oracle Cloud is not behind. And of course, AWS, they are also investing heavy dollars among, you know, bringing more and more applications onto their ecosystem. Because if the application adoption grows, the infrastructure automatically grows. So they make more money by if the applications grow in the front end. So I think we're seeing huge amount of investment also coming from them in the Indian ecosystem. Well, I think that's a really good note to end on. Manav and Sid, I want to thank you both for taking the time to speak about this critical tech sector and its place in such an important dynamic market. It's been a really informative discussion. Thank you. Thanks for having us in. So that's it for the pod. Thanks again to our guests, Manav Garg, the chair of SAS Boomi and CEO and founder of ECA, and Sid Tandon, McKinsey partner in the firm's Silicon Valley office. As always, I also want to thank our stellar McKinsey on Startups production team, Molly Carlin, Polly Noah, Sid Ramtree, Myron Shergan, and Katie Zamorowski. And of course, thank you for listening. We hope you'll return for future episodes. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.